Okay, it seems like fall might actually be here, and you can satisfy those seasonal cravings just in time with Organifi Gold Pumpkin Spice Blend. Packed with powerful superfoods, Gold Pumpkin Spice supports rest and relaxation with a touch of spice to make it your best holiday season treat. Formulated to deliver the same amazing benefits as Organifi Gold, but with a special spice to help curb those fall cravings. It has 12 USDA certified organic superfoods. It tastes delicious in warm water or in milk. There's no sugar, so you can enjoy this warm dessert-like tea guilt-free. It tastes so good right before bed, and you will wake up refreshed and feeling great. This is such a treat for fall. You can experience Organifi's high-quality superfoods for less than $3 a day. Go to www.organifi.com slash bestofyou and use code bestofyou for 20% off your order. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com slash bestofyou and use code bestofyou for 20% off any item. Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Allison, and I'm so glad you're here to discover what brings out the best of you. This podcast is all about breaking free from painful patterns, mending the past, and discovering our true selves in God. I can't wait to get started as we learn together how to become the best version of who we are with God's help. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Best of You podcast. I'm so thrilled you're here today, and I'm especially thrilled to bring you this conversation with my dear friend and fellow therapist, Dr. Kurt Thompson. Kurt was on the podcast. He was back on episode 58. He was on with his friends, Pepper Sweeney and Amy Chella. It's a great episode and you get a real sense of their friendship and Kurt really lives out what he teaches. But I wanted to have him on to talk about hope because I think hope is one of the most fundamental life skills that we all need to develop. And Kurt just has a wonderful way of talking about it. Kurt is an author and a psychiatrist. He's the founder of the Center for Being Known, an organization that develops resources for hope and healing at the intersection of neuroscience and Christian spiritual formation. He's the author of The Anatomy of the Soul, The Soul of Shame, The Soul of Desire, and his latest book that just came out, it's called The Deepest Place, Suffering and the Formation of Hope. Everything Kurt does just really speaks to me, and we get pretty personal today on the podcast. Both Kurt and I are deep feelers, right? And so when we're talking about this stuff, there's often tears in the back of our eyes. And so you'll hear some moments of quiet where there are tears showing up, both in Kurt and in myself. It was just a beautiful, powerful conversation. I took so much away from it personally. It moved me. And I'm so thrilled for you to now join me in this conversation with my dear friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. I realized it just started recording. Can you say that quote again? I want to capture it. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So from Frederick Beekner, here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. I love that. And you thought of that quote as I was asking you how you're doing. And Mm. it's just such a beautiful segue, really, into also your book. Mm. 
which mm. is to me so much this paradox of hope and suffering, mm. the both and, and the one not being able to really exist without the other, which is mm. kind of what Buechner is getting at. It's it's always a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. I'm so looking forward to this conversation by way of background. We've been going through skills that we all need to build to become really a healthy human adult. And we've talked about emotional intelligence, about resilience, about mm. relational habits. And mm. I don't think you can become a flourishing, healthy human if you don't understand hope Mm -hmm. and if you don't understand how to develop hope. And I love in the subtitle of your book, you talk about the formation Mm -hmm. of hope. Mm -hmm. And I'd kind of love to just start there. Mm -hmm. This is a terrible question to ask, but what is hope? Is it a feeling? Is it a mindset? Mm -hmm. Is it a skill we develop? Mm -hmm. What's your understanding of hope. We, we toss the word around a lot. Mm-hmm. We see it on memes. Mm-hmm. We see it in cliches, mm-hmm. but it's a really deep concept. What is your understanding of it? Well, you know, Allison, I would say in some respects, one way to begin to talk about it is, first of all, it's just to put it in perspective, starting big picture and then moving closer into who we actually are as real people and with our real stories. And one thing we say when we talk about hope, we're actually talking about something that has to do with our anticipated future. Yeah. Hope is a thing that's happening somewhere five minutes from now, five years from now. So it's a future state thing. And then if we consider it very generally, as it turns out, hope is the word that we use that is kind of like a euphemism for any part of my anticipated future that I would find to be something that I would actually look forward to with joy as opposed to looking forward to it with dread. Mm. It is a hopeful future. Now, what's interesting is that without calling it hope, this is what we are doing from the time that we come into the world. We are generating hope. Mm -hmm. You come into the world as a newborn and you start to cry and mom comes for you and you discover that mom comforts you. And then the next time you do it and the next time you do it and so forth and so on. And what you're doing is you're developing an anticipated future in which you are going to be cared for when you are in distress. If that's the kind of family you're growing up, if we have a secure attachment for the most part. Mm -hmm. And so we form hope long before we call it that. But what it is, is a future state in which I expect good things to happen. Mm. That's really kind of the simplest definition. And it is a thing that we are doing every time, you know, I pull out of my driveway and I drive my car. And without imagining it, I hope that everybody else who's coming my direction stays on their side of the highway. I hope they do. Now, I'm not thinking that that, but that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm driving, Mm -hmm. hopefully. Mm-hmm. The other thing, too, that is important, then, is to know that hope is actually a thing that I am in the business of forming mm-hmm. neurobiologically, interpersonally. I'm forming it. We often talk about it as if it is this kind of abstract thing, or at least it's a thing that is independent of anything that I have to do with it. I either have it or I don't have it. Maybe it'll drop into my lap. Maybe it will. I hope that I'm able to hope, Yeah. but I don't have any way of being connected to its formation. And then the other thing that we would say is hope that is durable is always, or I don't know if we would say always, but it appears frequently that hope that is durable is always formed in the kiln of some kind of suffering. Yeah. So even in your very first example, right, the baby who is crying, the impetus for the hope is the pain, Mm -hmm. is the suffering, is the need. Mm -hmm. Would you say that in order to hope, one has to suffer? Would you say that they are intimately linked in that way? Well, I mean, we might say I don't necessarily have to suffer 
to hope that people will stay on their side of the highway when they're driving toward me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but for durable hope, yeah, for me to hope durably, for me to hope in a moment in which my pain is still with me, yeah, that's a different kind of hope. And this, I think, is what Paul is getting at in that passage in Romans 5 that we explore in the book, this notion that that kind of hope emerges in this crucible of suffering. As long as I'm able to recognize that that crucible of suffering itself is preceded by a certain set of assumptions that Paul is making about our relationship with Jesus and about our relationship in the community to which he's writing. I'm not expected to pick up that book of Romans and read it and think, oh, Paul's writing to me, Kurt, as the individual, and I'm going to have to suffer and somehow like white knuckle myself through perseverance, through characters so I can get to hope. Yeah. Paul's writing to a community. Mm. And it is in the context of that community that we are seen, Sue, safe, secure. The body becomes the person of Jesus to me, in which we are loving people in wild and crazy ways that in that context would have never been predicted outside of the presence of Jesus. And in that community, it creates the opportunity for me to reveal myself in my pain to others who are going to be present with me, which enables us to form hope. So I don't form hope for me. We form hope for me. And we form hope for you in that way. I love that. That's a key point in the book. I want to circle back to that we hope in the context of community and in connection. Yeah. But I love what you just said. And I want to pause there because I think so many of us, I was thinking about it as I was reading this book, that Romans 5 passage is so familiar. I've always felt kind of the linear part of my brain is like, okay, just like you said, it's not that encouraging to me. It's like a hard thing happens. I got (laughs) to... work really hard, and then it's sequential. And then at the end, I might get this feeling of hope that's a fruit of all this hard stuff. And that's not a super hopeful Mm -mm. or pleasant way of looking at it, right? And you are expanding. Mm -hmm. It's more of this circular. It's more of this virtuous cycle where all of these things are kind of happening simultaneously. Mm -hmm. It's an action. It's a forming in the context of community. I want to circle back to that. I want to put a pin in that. But I have a question for you before we get there. There's a way in which when you talk about hope as being futuristic, future-oriented, a way of looking toward an outcome that is favorable, that we hope will come to pass, it almost sounds a little bit like, not the opposite of, but perhaps the opposite of, anxiety, where there is this futuristic orientation toward all that could go wrong. Mm -hmm. It almost sounds to me as if hope is in some ways the antidote for anxiety, and it's not positive thinking. It's something much deeper and much Mm -hmm. more robust spiritually and neurobiologically Mm -hmm. than just the power of positive thinking. But does that jive with your... Yeah. And what I would say in this regard is hope, we form it, but the it that we form is actually a byproduct. I don't form hope because I set out to form hope. I form hope because in my suffering, I allow myself to be revealed to you. And I do it over and over and over again, despite the fact that my pain isn't leaving, which is perseverance. And in the course of that work, I become a person of character that I couldn't have been if I'm trying to do this all by myself or if I'm trying to do this by myself without revealing myself to someone else. And that movement from the suffering, practicing perseverance, the development of character, as we like to say, we always remember our futures. Our future is only ever constructed out of my remembered past. I don't ever construct a future that I'm not imagining from my past experience in some way, shape, or form. And so when I talk about hope, what I'm really talking about is an anticipated future that is built out of multiple moments 
of embedded experience that I commit to memory in which I have experienced my pain in the presence of Allison, who is with me with loving kindness, and my friend Neil, and my friend Rich and Byron, these people who are with me, and I encode this. Mm-hmm. And this becomes that which becomes my source for my anticipated future. And so I'm building a neural base mm-hmm. of memory of, oh, when I am in pain, I am also experiencing the presence of those who are with me. And it categorically shapes and changes the nature of a story that I tell about the pain, including how I experience the feeling of it. And that means that as I imagine my future, my future becomes one of repeated moments just like this. Mm -hmm. And so the hope that I'm forming, I'm forming in the present moment so that when I do think about my future, that future is coming out of this series of present moments that I have felt, this seabed if you will, mm-hmm. of seeds that we are planting of the presence, the at one of Jesus through his body being with me. And so when I imagine my future, I'm like, oh, Kurt, when is this problem that you have that is so awful going to stop? I think like, I don't know. But when I think about having it next Friday, I think about the sense that I'm not by myself with this and it categorically changes. And I have a hopeful future. And that actually circles back around to change my present moment itself. It's really a paradigm shift in that it shifts the focus of the hope from the outcome out there and onto the journey, which is I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know I'm going to receive care and love and kindness and connection and beauty in this moment. Man, car sickness is the worst. We often take this windy mountain road and inevitably somebody is getting nauseated. That's why I'm so thrilled this podcast is sponsored by Relief Band. It's the number one anti-nausea wristband that quickly relieves and effectively prevents nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. Relief Band is natural, fast-acting, and it lasts as long as you need it. It's 100% drug-free, non-drowsy, and has zero side effects. I'm very conscious of what I put in my body, so I love that I don't need to take any pills for Relief Band to work. It's magic. Remember, you don't have to overplan for nausea relief or dose up six hours before a trip. Just bring your relief band and you're good to go. Right now, we've got an exclusive offer just for Best of You listeners. If you go to reliefband.com and use promo code Best of You, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping. So head to R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D.com and use our promo code Best of You for 20% off plus free shipping. A recent survey found that 7 in 10 parents get an average of just three hours of sleep a night in their baby's first year. Moms, you deserve to have quality sleep. And I know one thing that will help. It's Cozy Earth. You can discover the secret to better sleep with Cozy Earth's luxurious bedding products. And here's an exclusive Mother's Day offer just for our listeners. Use code BESTOFYOU for 35% off at CozyEarth.com. Cozy Earth bedding products are crafted with temperature-regulating technology that adapts to your body's needs through all phases of motherhood. And they use only the very best fabrics, materials, and weaves, offering superior softness that invites you to sink into a world of comfort. The best part is Cozy Earth stands by the quality and longevity of their products. Enjoy a 100-night sleep trial and a 10-year warranty on all purchases. They're built to last through the hardest days and the longest nights. 
Treat yourself to ultimate comfort with Cozy Earth bedding and sleepwear and prioritize your self-care and sleep health. Head over to CozyEarth.com and use promo code BESTOFYOU for an exclusive 35% off. The luxury she deserves. Cozy Earth. Heard I'm imagining the person listening, especially if we think about hope being formed literally from the moment we experience comfort as a newborn mm-hmm. baby, as a mm-hmm. child. What happens if we'd never encoded that kind of positive experience as a child, you know, for mm-hmm. whatever reason, as a result of emotional neglect, abuse, traumatic experiences. And so our brain really does go to when bad things happen, I am alone right. and I don't have a different memory for that. Right. Well, my guess is that if they're listening to your podcast, they didn't just like randomly flip a coin and oh, they landed on Allison's podcast. They're probably listening to you for a reason. And even if they grew up in a place where they knew very little of a secure attachment, if they're listening to you, it's because at some point, in some level, they are forming a secure attachment with you, even if you're not in the room. It's happening because this is the work that you do. I know you. I consider you to be my friend. I love being in the room. It's like, who wouldn't love being in the room with you? Because I'm really serious. Like the sense that if somebody's listening, they're already hopeful. And they're hopeful because not just because, oh, Allison provides great information which you do, but they're not coming for your information. They're coming for you. This is why your listeners are coming. And what's happening for them means that even there in a somewhat, maybe it's not picture perfect because you're not in the room and you aren't sharing meals together and so forth, but there are going to be listeners whose attachments are being formed differently because they're listening to you. They're listening to us now. And we would say to those listeners, gosh, I wonder what it feels like if you were to imagine Allison being with you in your kitchen, and having a cup of coffee together. What do you imagine that would be like? And I imagine that there'd be a lot of people who's like, I would love that. Yeah, and why do you think that is? Because you've already had this felt sense, literally in your chest, that this is a woman who's willing to both be vulnerable, but also who listens well, and who's willing to be present with you in the room with the parts of you that are hard. And when that begins to happen, that's the kind of experience that we want to have you practice paying attention to. My hopeless future, my dreaded future, is really me practicing simply paying attention to the things that I've always paid attention to. Again, this is why we talk about hope being formed. It is not a thing that is just going to fall out of the sky into my lap because I want it to. God takes us very seriously and expects us to be involved in the hope-forming project. And so for those people who haven't had it at the cradle, my guess is that we would say, oh, well, then we're going to want to work on that, about finding relationships where that can become possible. I love that. It's a spin on you always say paying attention to what you're paying attention to. That applies to shame, but it also applies to hope, paying attention yeah. to that feeling of there's just something here that gives me hope. So like when you say like there's something here, again, if I were to get up and walk across the hallway, walk down the hallway of my house, and I say like, well, I hope that the floor holds. I don't think I'm going to say I hope the floor holds, but I'm living as if I do hope the floor holds. And why is that? Because I've had an embodied encounter with the floor thousands of times. And so when we talk about this kind of hope for relational wholeness, we're talking about putting ourselves in a position in which we can have greater numbers of experiences in which we are being seen in this way that we're talking about in the middle of our pain. Yeah. And so maybe even the first step, if you're someone who struggles with a lot of anxiety, a lot of despair, a lot of hopelessness, however it shows up in your life, is beginning to notice 
what are those times when it feels like the floor held just a little bit? Mm-hmm. When it feels mm-hmm. like someone, just a glimmer, you know, to use Deb Dana's word, she uses this word glimmer that is kind of like the opposite of a trigger, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So it's a moment of, and I feel like she's talking about hope. I'm not sure she would contextualize it that way, but it's when your nervous system feels all those good things of, yeah. okay, maybe I can do this, right? Mm-hmm. It's noticing those glimmers and capturing them intentionally. Mm -hmm. In that moment, after I talked to that person, I felt a little bit better and cultivating, being mindful about gathering up some of those hopes so that you can kind of follow the breadcrumbs to greater and greater awareness. Right. I mean, I'm sure that you have this experience when you're in the consultation room with folks. You know, you have an experience with a patient in which something happens and you sense them sensing that they've been seen. There's some moment of felt connection. And when this happens in our confessional communities, when there's, you know, 10 of us in the room, we pause, we stop the moment and we say, tell us what just happened. We want to draw their attention to what they feel in their chest, what's happened in their body. We want them to be explicit and tell us Who said what? What were they looking like? What was the tone of their voice? We want them to practice this. And then we say, your assignment between now and next week is every day, I want you to rewrite the screenplay of what just happened here. I want you to begin to remember, you know, this is the Old Testament. Remember, 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 remember. This notion of literally practicing neurally embedding this moment such that this becomes that which generates your anticipated future more and more and more, which is essentially what hope amounts to. Practicing hope, yeah. really. Yeah. Practicing it. And you talk about that. We have to practice it. Right. We have to catch that glimmer of it. I love what you also said about secure attachment. And I'm curious as a therapist what you think about this part of why. And I appreciate so much what you said about the podcast, because I've thought a lot about what is the purpose of this? Why do I do this? You know, you do this too. Like, mm. what is the purpose? Mm. What hope am I providing? And mm. some of it grew out of for me as, in my work as a therapist. And it's fascinating to me. It's not the brilliance of what I say. It's not the therapeutic modality, although, you know, I love IFS. There's different interventions that certainly work well. What people remember and consistently would say to me is I kind of would start to hear your voice in my head. What would Allison say in this moment? And I was like, that, and it was never the most brilliant thing I said. It was hope. Mm -hmm. It was just, Mm -hmm. oh, Allison would say, and they're starting to internalize that voice. And that's so much of what we need. I mean, does that, you're laughing. So I presume it's kind of humbling, right? It's both humbling and it's also freeing. It's like, oh gosh, this is so much simpler this work, it's more complex and more simple than we make it out to be. Yeah, you know, that's really well said. And I think about, again, I'm reflecting on this work that happens in these confessional communities yeah. that we provide. We know there is a moment for every one of the participants that typically happens when we hear them say some version of, and this is often unsolicited, but it is often also the case that we ask them to practice this, some version of, I had the hardest conversation I've ever had with my boss yesterday and every single one of you were in the office and I know exactly where you were standing, you know, and Susan, you were actually sitting right beside me. And of course, it's easy for us to say, oh, that's just like, I'm just making stuff up in my head. And I want to say, of course, it's in your head in that it's neurally embedded. But this is exactly what we do with everything that we do. When a toddler goes off to preschool, she takes mom and dad in her head with her even though she doesn't know that that's what she's doing. The reason she can go off to preschool is because like mom and dad are with her. 
Yeah. And so this is not just an imagined fairy tale, take us with you. Yeah. No, it is really like people take up residence in the presence of others. Yeah. So when Paul uses this metaphor of the body of Jesus, there were all kinds of other words they could have used to describe the church. But he's really taking something, this material world, and maximizing its efficacy for us recognizing that taking Jesus literally is the taking of these people that I know, and they're going to be in the room with me. And that kind of work, it's so kind of antithetical to how we are in our kind of modernist way of thinking that spirituality is just this rather abstract thing that happens out in the ether, rather than beginning with our bodies, and that hope is a thing that actually, as it turns out, is formed by virtue of me imagining that my friends' bodies are in the room with me in the middle of my the hardest places. I wanted to tell you, I love how in all that you do, you bring us back to this idea of embodied hope. And it's not just in this book, although it's in this book so beautifully. You have been the voice in my head Hmm. that has helped me understand the power of community. And I want you to know that. I think that for me, I can do the internal work. I can be a good parent Mm. to the parts of myself. I can co-parent with God, Mm. with Jesus, with the parts of myself. I can be with the hurting parts of me. I can invite God. But boy, to let other humans Mm. near those hurting parts is a challenge for me. I talk about that. And the way that you describe these confessional communities, the way that you describe the body of Christ as embodied withness, as in and of itself bringing hope, Mm -hmm. has been so meaningful to me. And I I want to say that to you while while you're here with me, because you are that embodiment Mm -hmm. of hope to me. The way that you describe this whole process as happening in the context of withness has just really helped me become a hope seeker in my relationships. Yeah. So thank you for that. Well, first of all, you're very kind to say that. So it feels really good to hear. And I'm really taking that in. Really grateful. It's just a lovely gift on a Thursday afternoon that I didn't see coming. And so it's just a really, it's really lovely. So thank you for that, for your words. And you know, I would say, as our friends at the Bible Project like to say, everything you need to know about human beings you can find out by reading the first six chapters of Genesis. Mm -hmm. You read that and like, there's nothing more. Everything you need to know, it's right there. And one of the very first things that we read has to do with how God formed the human and that he begins with mud and he breathes the breath of life into the human's nostrils and the human becomes a living being. And we might say, therefore, that if we take away the dirt or if we take away the breath, that we stop being human. And so they're both equally important for us to be human, but there is a sequence in which we are formed. And that same sequence, as it turns out, is followed in terms of how our life is actually lived in the world. First, we sense, and only then do we make sense of what we sense. First, we have an encounter, we behold the word, and only then do we write in John chapter one, how we beheld the glory. Mm -hmm. The theology and the written text only follows the embodied experience. And it then turns around to inform my embodied experience and so forth. But I think it has been helpful 
I mean, I've grown up in the same world that everybody else has that kind of taught us that, you know, the Christian story is about a set of beliefs and so forth and so on. And, and that's kind of primarily what it is. Yeah. That it necessarily involves my body first. Right. Doesn't make sense to me because that's not the world that we live in, but it would have been the first century Hebrews world. And then as it turns out, there is just an infinite array of practical ways that we can apply this in the form of healing for our patients. And so we see that the mechanics that we learn about is kind of walking in lockstep with the story that we hear about in the text. Yeah. And just a beautiful thing. How did you arrive at your own experience of you presumably you went to medical school, you become a psychiatrist, you're interested in helping others. How did you begin to conceptualize from a felt need place in your life? Hmm. Oh, this needs to happen in community. This needs to happen with other people. Because I think many of us, I mean, I shouldn't project onto you, just speaking for myself, I go into this field with a little bit of, I know intellectually we should be doing this in community, Mm -hmm. but how do we actually do that? In your own personal life, what are some milestones where you realized that there's something bigger going on here mm-hmm. than just an expert with a patient? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, I have the story, not just a story, but the story that was for the Hebrews, the coming out of Egypt is the formational story. I finished residency in 1992. We moved to the D.C. area that summer. We joined a church. And that fall, we had our first covenant group gatherings, our small group. They called them covenant groups at our church that we are still part of here. And there were about, I don't know, eight or nine of us that were in the group. And we decided, hey, this would be a good idea since many of us are coming to this group brand new to the church, brand new to each other, for us to tell our stories. And the woman who is now my and has been my literary agent, Leslie Nunn-Reed, who now lives in Dallas, but who at the time was living in the D.C. area. She was part of our covenant group. And Leslie was the first to decide everybody's going to tell their story, take one night and tell their story, get to know. And the very first night, Leslie says to us, she says, I realize that as I approach this, there are two stories I can tell. Mm. I could tell the story that would be easy to tell, and that's the kind of story that everybody here would find easy to tell. Or I could tell the real story. And I've decided I'm going to tell the real story. And it was one of the game-changing moments, not just in my life, but in the life of this entire covenant group. And she told the good, the bad, and the hard. And That vulnerability was like the horse left the barn and there was no getting the horse back in the barn. Mm. And so from that time forward, we began to live a life together in which, and it's to this day, there are four couples that are part of it to this day, I would say there's very little, if anything, at least the men in that group, there's nothing about me they don't know. And there's nothing about us as couples that for the most part, we don't know. Mm. We have loved each other. We have fought with each other. We have been mad at each other. We have had to repair ruptures with each other. And what was interesting about it is that the whole time that this is happening, I'm just a newly minted, just out of residency psychiatrist. And I'm taking care of patients while I'm having this experience personally. And about the time interpersonal neurobiology rolled around, or just before that, it became clear that what we were doing in that community was transformational for us. It just transformed everything that we were doing. And I think the walking into that workshop with Dan Siegel 20 years ago, it's like, oh my gosh, these are the mechanics of what we've been doing for the last 15 to 20 years. And from that time forward, and then you start like read the scriptures and you're like, holy freaking cow. That's right. It's just everywhere. 
61% of people experience gastrointestinal discomfort, and I'm definitely one of them, which is why I love Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's a broad-spectrum probiotic and prebiotic formulated with 24 clinically and scientifically studied strains for whole-body benefits, including gut, skin, and heart health. Seed's patented capsule-in-capsule ViaCap technology optimizes viability and delivers a precision release to the colon, no refrigeration required. It promotes healthy regularity and stool quality in addition to healthy gut immune function. I notice such a difference in my regularity when I take my DSO-1 consistently versus when I skip a day. Visit seed.com slash best of you and use code best of you to redeem 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 daily symbiotic. That's seed.com slash best of you and use code best of you. Getting high-quality food and household essentials delivered right to my doorstep, whether it's my favorite Dave's Killer Bread, incredible wine, or seventh-generation cleaning supplies has been a game-changer for me. I love that Thrive Market only allows trusted, top-quality ingredients while restricting thousands of harmful ingredients like artificial flavors, high-fructose corn syrup, and more. And with just a few clicks, I can filter out ingredients that I don't want, like gluten or high-sugar content, making it so easy to find the items I need for my family. Best of all, when you join Thrive Market, you are also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. Save time and money and shop Thrive Market today. Go to thrivemarket.com slash best of you for 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash best of you. Thrivemarket.com slash best of you. It's so cool. I love that. Is that the woman to whom you dedicated this? This most recent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. The deepest place, right? And now I understand even more deeply why that's so formative. Yeah. Because then you could see what's happening and what we've looked at as a spiritual practice, which is the practice of gathering and fellowshipping and breaking bread and all the things that are in scripture and said, oh, this is this is actually in our brain. There's a neurobiological basis for this. This is actually how God designed us and put all that language to it. Yeah. So powerful. Thanks for asking. I love telling that story because I love talking about Leslie in that way. I don't think anybody else would have even thought to have told the real story in the way that she did. And it upended, as does all healing, it upended all of us in the most beautiful and sometimes difficult ways. It's very brave what she did. And it's a really helpful reminder, again, going back to how do you begin to, I call it sometimes a glimmer gatherer or a hope seeker, someone who's looking for these moments of hope right there. You know, Mm -hmm. she did something in that moment that you were aware of and you moved Mm -hmm. toward that as a group. And here you are 20 years later or however many years later with this rich, I would imagine, a very robust experience of hope that you're now pouring out to so many others. Right. This morning, I was at breakfast with one of the husbands of these families. His name's Rich, lifelong friend of mine. On Monday, I'll be with Neil. And these relationships, these are not therapeutic relationships, but these are deeply formational relationships for me because they're all part of the larger context. It's not just this individual thing that I've had, right? It's with each of them in the context of this community in which the community itself is providing a crucible ballast support but also a certain level of you know conviction of loving kindness when pressure needs to be born you know when love is demanding things of us that I would rather it not demand of me yeah it's real community it's real embodied 
witness that is transformational. And it is the context of this sort of hope suffering partnership that is the topic of The Deepest Place. I want to circle back when you were saying just about how even these words that we're saying right now, right, being on a podcast, Mm. we can form these secure attachments that Mm. can do some good, right? And everything I think about therapy has a place. It does some good. This has a place. The written words that we do have a place. There's probably nothing that can take the place of that kind of confessional community Mm -hmm. that you described so well, those real transformational on-the-ground relationships. I long for people to experience what you experienced Mm -hmm. with Leslie. Mm -hmm. I do. Um, I think that's where this transformation occurs. Mm -hmm. I long for more of it. You describe it so well in The Soul of Desire that it's not a replacement for church. It's not a replacement for therapy. And yet, It is these communities in real life, these relationships really are when we are suffering, because suffering will come and you talk about that in the book. We will suffer. Mm -hmm. You know, it's how do we suffer and and how do we cultivate and form hope in the midst of suffering? And really, Kurt, in so many ways, what you're saying is it's in the context of being known. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, that's what we need. Right. Think about Leslie being so brave, right, in her small group that wasn't set up for this and just said, I'm going to tell you the truth today. Mm. Yeah. I'm going to take a chance. And we didn't even know that she was being brave because, like, we weren't even imagining that this is the kind of story that, like, who in their right mind would ever do such a thing, right, to actually take the book of James seriously? Is that if you not well? Confess. Yeah. Tell the truth. Tell your story. And all the part about your story that is unwell, let it be prayed for such that you may be healed. Yeah. And this is essentially what she did. She's naming all the things. I mean, again, the whole notion, it's not good for the man to be alone. And you want to say like, well, no kidding. And so that I suffer is in no small part a function of the degree to which the parts of me that I carry that are in pain, I carry them alone. And it is in so naming them to a person who is willing to name the same to me about their own that I discover that I'm not alone with this. And it is in the not being alone that healing's door is opened. And this is where, you know, the whole notion of like the Trinitarian theology of the church is such a big deal. It's so important because this notion that when Peter quacks off the ear of the high priest's servant in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus heals him and then says, put away your sword. Do you not know that should I want to, I could call for 12 legions, 60,000 troops, and they would come. And so you imagine you hear him say that and your mind is immediately drawn to Elisha and his servant, and Jerusalem is surrounded, and the servant is panicked, and Elisha says, let him see. And his eyes were opened, and he saw the host of heaven, the army of the Lord God Almighty. Nobody else could see this, but you figure, on Good Friday, it's easy for us to be so limited in our imagination. We don't see 60,000 troops that are at the ready, just waiting for their captain's call, and he doesn't call them. And you can imagine being the archangel And you're wondering, like, why is he not calling? And this sense of withness, this sense that Jesus has the awareness that he is not by himself, even in the middle of his suffering, because he sees things that even in that space would be hard for anyone to see. And this is what we are called to be doing. I'm just reading today about Stephen Mm -hmm. and his stoning, and he saw the Son of Man. Mm -hmm. There's things that he sees because he is so immersed in this community Mm -hmm. of the king. Mm -hmm. Such that his face shines 
in the face of adversity. Yeah. Yeah. He's not pep-talking himself to that, to use your word. That's an encoded experience of something that is so real that in that moment of the worst adversity of being literally stoned, his face is beaming because he is with that memory, that lived experience of goodness and of love. Yeah. And you're right. We practice that. I love that. We have to practice that. And we have to practice that in community with others. We have to practice that. And to use your words, you know, we have to suffer differently. Sometimes I say suffer wisely, but I love you're just taking it to just suffer a little bit differently. Mm. Just tell somebody, get that experience of it didn't necessarily fix my problem, but I wasn't alone. And something shifted. Something got encoded inside of me. And I'm building on that. I got one. You know, I'm going to look for another one to the point where we become like Jesus or like Stephen. It's just so beautiful, Kurt. I could talk to you for hours. I love talking to you. (laughs) I'm so grateful for you. (laughs) I know. We could just do this forever, but I love how Mm. real it all is for you. Mm. And I think that's what speaks to people. All of your work comes from the overflow of your heart. Mm. I want to just close because I ask, Mm. when I do have guests, I ask them, Mm. what is bringing out the best of you right now? What is bringing you hope right now? You know, okay. So in this list, in this group of people that I'm with, I've got this covenant group and I've got these three other guys that I'm with every Tuesday morning for the last 25 plus years for confession and prayer and so forth. And, you know, I say without these people in my life, I'm a dead man. But in this context, I've made a list of people that I have to forgive. Mm. Then there's 10 that are on the list. And you might think, okay, if I'm listening to this, am I on the list? No, you're not on a list. Okay. You're on a list. Okay. <laughs> That's dangerous. <laughs> okay. There are people on the list. And what has been hopeful has been the work of, the, and there's a certain suffering that goes with, like, I have to admit, oh, I've actually enjoyed holding a grudge. I've taken pleasure in holding a grudge about something like, I don't think about all these people all the time, but when they come up, I'm like, oh, I'm liking being pissed and I have good reason for it, but I'm having to burn energy to keep that story alive. I'm having to come to terms with like, oh, this is a story that I have told. Yes, certain things happened, but now I recognize I have now been telling a story ever since it did happen and I am my problem. Yeah. (laughs) And so what has been hopeful has been practicing, imagining Jesus being in the room with me, with them, and practicing telling a different story Mm. and sharing this with these people in my group and recognizing that there has been a shift in my posture. Now, I'm imperfect at this, and I still have a long way to go. But for the first time, like I'm like, oh, I'm getting to a point where I'm really looking forward to not holding the grudges, not holding it. Like I would much rather like not do that rather than enjoying it as much as I have been for however long I've been enjoying it. And so that's something that I can say that has been a hopeful thing. I love that. I mean, you know, the way you get there is uh, you got to identify these other things that you're not very proud of. But yeah, I love it. You're practicing hope and you're right. It's such that paradox. And I just want to encourage everybody. It's called the deepest place, suffering and the formation of hope. It's that paradox of it doesn't feel that great Mm. to look at that. Mm. But man, when you do in the context of safety and the context of love, it breeds hope. It's amazing. And so it is very hopeful. It's such a paradox. It's facing what's hard about ourselves, about our lives in the context of safety, love, compassion. It does. It develops hope. It develops that you know you're going to get to a better place. Tell everybody how they can find you, how they can find your work, Kurt. Yeah. Well, probably the way that most people are finding it these days is through podcasts that I co-host with my friend Pepper Sweeney. So that's called the Being Known Podcast. Yeah. That's one way to find me. There's another way through just my website, KurtThompsonMD.com. Yeah. And then there's Instagram, Facebook, and 
what used to be called Twitter, whatever it is now, you can find that <laughs> yes. on that account. I can tell how much you love those mediums. Right. And then you can find me through the Center for Being Known, which you so kindly and generously spoke at last year. And so through that and through this Connections Conference that we'll be having here in about a month. So those are some ways to find me. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but for folks who are interested in potentially doing a confessional community, they can get information about that at your website, right? They can get information about that at my website through the Center for Being Known. And then also through our practice that does training, it does immersion trainings, intensives for folks. And that's called New Story Behavioral Health. That's here in Northern Virginia. So it's a way to do that. That's great. It's very kind. Thank you. You're the best. Just always grateful for time with you. And thank you for for joining us today. Me too. Time with you. Thank you. You're very welcome. Pleasure. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of The Best of You. It would mean so much if you take a moment to subscribe. You can go to Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts and click the plus or follow button. That will ensure you don't miss an episode and it helps get the word out to others. While you're there, I'd love it if you leave your five-star review. I look forward to seeing you back here next Thursday. And remember, as you become the best of who you are, you honor God, you heal others, and you stay true to your God-given self.